If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 15, starting at verse 22, continuing our journey through Exodus, looking at all of God's exploits, all of his goodness with the children of Israel uh, from Egypt throughout the wilderness, and we'll continue walking in that on this morning. Do we have any roller coaster fans in the house? We got a few. Amen. Amen. I had my first roller coaster experience in the early to mid 90s. Uh, my dear brother, our pastor, and uh, a late brother, uh, our late brother, Quincy Jones, who passed back in 2011, they talked me into it. And y'all know how that is. Anytime there's something you don't want to do when somebody talks you into it, right? I had never been on a roller coaster before and looking at this massive, winding, bulleting monster of a ride in front of us, it was not my idea of fun. And as we stood there, my brothers pleading their case of, of why I should do it, you could hear the people who were currently on the ride screaming at different points throughout the ride, and it didn't sound as if it was their idea of fun either. Now, while I don't remember the exact words that my brothers used to convince me to take part in this activity, I knew at that moment it would certainly cost me my life. I do remember thinking to myself, Lord, if I die, at least I'm with my brothers. And with that, we get in line. I don't remember even which roller coaster it was that we were about to get on, and I I don't know if it was noticeable at that point outwardly, but I was shaking with fear on the inside. There were too many variables, and it was uh, uh, all happening too fast for me to have any peace about what was about to take place. Step by step, we get closer and closer to the gates of this train of death. My feet are following in step, but my heart is in full protest. We make it to the gate and you can see now the groups ahead of you uh, now loading themselves willingly into what I thought were uh, seats of certain doom. The attendants call for an end to the boarding and they make their rounds uh, uh, around those who are seated, making sure that the bars or the harnesses uh, have been properly secured and the train begins to move forward. Y'all know that slow roll, right? So slowly it leaves the safety of the the boarding hub and you can hear now the, the clanking and the chugging of the mechanics of the train moving it forward. And, and about now, you know, depending on what ride you're on, you look out and you can see over the park and you realize now that you are possibly hundreds of feet above the ground. In true roller coaster fashion, the train stops momentarily. And if you're like me, at that point, I was thinking to myself, maybe this is my chance to voice my disapproval and maybe they'll let me off the ride. But before you can call for the attendance, your mouth is filled with screaming as you're dropped off the edge at an ungodly speed. Everybody remember that, your first roller coaster? Because it was new, because of the, the uncertainty of it, because of, what look, because of what it looked like, 
I fought against it. On the inside, I fought against it. I wrestled. But these many, these many years later, I'm very glad that I got on that roller coaster with my brothers. One of Merriam-Webster's definitions of roller coaster is something resembling a roller coaster, especially behaviors, events, or experiences characterized by sudden and extreme changes. Does this kind of sound like your walk with God at any point during your walk with God? Have you had moments of fear, moments of uncertainty, moments where emotion seemed uncontrollable? Moments of change that took you faster than you were prepared to go to places you were unprepared to be in. I imagine this is how Israel felt in their journey throughout the wilderness. After spending generations in slavery in Egypt long enough to grow from a number just over 72 to now over 2 million, they experience changes as God works to move them from an enslaved people to a free and chosen people, to move them from Egypt, the land of bondage, to uh, uh, the land that he promised to their forefathers. From living life according to the words of Pharaoh to living life according to the word of God. If you were with us last week, Israel was encamped at Etham, and Moses is, is instructed by God to tell them to turn back from uh, our camp at Pi-ha-hirath, did I do okay? I was quaking over that word. And from turning, uh, from that turning, rather, we got two words from Pastor Brian last week that, that really blessed me and have just been uh, uh, sticking with me because they perfectly describe what it feels like at times when you're expecting things to go one way and they turn out completely different. Anybody remember what those two words were? Alternate routes. You remember that? Alternate, alternate denotes change, and change isn't something that any of us are very fond of. But God uses alternate routes. In chapter 14, verse 4, the Lord says, And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So God uses alternate routes for his glory. But God also uses alternate routes to reveal to us our inconsistencies, our unbelief, and our inability. Not to shame us. Amen? I want to make that clear. When you're in these moments and God is revealing things to you and he's convicting you, he's not doing it to shame you. But he's doing it to teach us, one, what it looks like to walk in faith with him. Or rather to teach us what it looks like to walk in faith with him. In my roller coaster experience, I learned that I love roller coasters. And that's my, one of my motivations for losing weight because the last time we went to a theme park, there was one ride I couldn't ride because I, I couldn't get the harness secure. But I learned that I love roller coasters, amen? In Israel's alternate route, God's aim is that Israel would learn that God is a God of his word. And throughout all of the events of their lives in the wilderness and beyond, whatever the need is, they can trust that God will provide. 
And that's my encouragement to you and to me this morning. God will provide. As we walk through Exodus again, we're taking the 30,000-foot view this morning, and we're tasked to cover chapters uh, 15, the latter part, verse 22, through uh, all of chapter 17. So y'all set your clocks. We last saw Israel having crossed the Red Sea and seeing God do yet another miraculous work by destroying Pharaoh and his host with the same waters he had just parted to allow them to pass through. Verses 28 and 29 of chapter 14 saying, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What followed was an all-out praise session. There was singing, there were instruments, there was dancing. And it was fitting, one, because God is God, amen? He's worthy of our praise, he's worthy of our worship. But certainly in response to what God had just done. So the praise session is not a surprise. Even in our own lives, when we see and acknowledge that God has intervened in some major way or answered a particular prayer, we give praise and we give thanks, right? And if we're feeling really good, we might even reach out and and testify to somebody about what God has done. So the the surprise, rather, is not in the The praise, the surprise is in what Israel did next. Look with me at our text in Exodus 15, starting at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So they set out from the shores of the Red Sea, where God has just performed an amazing miracle, twofold really, one in separating the waters that the people could walk across on dry land, and then two, bringing the waters back in to destroy the enemy that was coming against them. And again, in response to this, a massive praise and worship session breaks out. And then three days pass. Three days. Three days journey into the wilderness of Shur. Three days without water, yes, but three days also post-praise party. They come tomorrow, scripture says, where they find water but can't drink it because it's bitter. And they call the place Mara because the water was bitter. Can anybody guess what Mara means? Bitterness. Tough question, right? Everybody got points on double jeopardy. In three days, they go from praise party to pity party. Can we see the roller coaster? They go from a high place where they're praising God to a low place where they're grumbling against God. Have you been there? Have you had great moments with God followed by not so great moments in life? And if we're honest, it doesn't take us three days. Sometimes it's three hours. Sometimes it might be three minutes. If we recall our definition of of roller coaster, it involves three things. Behavior, 
how you feel about it, how you react, events, what's happening, or more specifically, what is God doing? Because God is orchestrating the alternate routes, right? And three, experience, what has happened as a result of what God did and how you reacted. Too often our behavior reflects that of Israel's at the Red Sea and at Marah. We can easily see, or rather when we can easily see God's goodness, we praise him. We give thanks. But when his goodness is cloaked in bitterness, we have a tendency to do what Israel did. We grumble. The Hebrew word here for grumble is loon or lean, and it has a few definitions that were very interesting to me. The first is to stop. Leaving the shores of the Red Sea and coming to the bitterness of Marah, Israel stopped. They stopped praising God. They stopped looking to God. They stopped trusting God. The next definition is to stay the night, to abide or to dwell. So not only did they stop praising God and stop looking to God and stop trusting God, but they chose to stay the night, to abide and to dwell and to sit in this moment of bitterness. Family, what Israel missed is that God had already given them the answer to the test of how to handle the bitter waters at Marah. When they were on the other side of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army barreling down on them, the instructions in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 14 were to fear not, stand firm, and don't miss the end of 14 because it's a part of the instruction, be silent. See, the salvation of the Lord was the experience. It was the result of what God was doing. And because Israel obeyed in that moment, the result of how they reacted to what God was doing. But see, the salvation of the Lord wasn't a part of the instruction. So why fear not? Why stand firm or stand still? Why uh, be silent? Why give them such an instruction? I'll ask this question. Can our emotions affect whether or not we decide to obey God? Absolutely. Absolutely. In emotionally charged moments, can we say and do things that are not reflective of who we are in Christ? Absolutely. If you've married, if you marry, you've certainly been there. In these instructions, God is addressing their behavior. He's addressing their emotions. He's orchestrating the event, right? God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart and sends the host after Israel. He has an end game. He came to deliver Israel. He speaks these instructions because we know he, he knows rather that we have the, the tendency emotionally in moments to be all over the place. He's telling them how to pass the test. And again, at the Red Sea, because they obeyed, they passed through the waters. Could Israel have then passed the test of the waters at Marah? Yes. But there is a lesson for us in their failing that hopefully will help us to overcome. But before we get to the test, let me acknowledge that some events are more bitter than others. Amen. We don't want to make light of Israel, and we don't want to make light of bitter moments. Even though we can really get petty 
sometimes and, and, and allow our emotions to get the better of us in bitter moments. But there are things that burden the soul. To much of my family's dismay, I've watched a lot of news this week. And one thing that really struck me was hearing that our current death toll because of COVID-19 in the country is approaching 240,000. It's a lot of grieving families. And that should burden our soul. The country is horribly divided, rather, in this election season, and some are calling for violence and, and civil war, and that should burden our soul. Even families here in our church have been suffering with long-term illnesses, and some deal daily with chronic pain. Parents this week receiving word of infants that have passed. These are moments where life is truly bitter. But how should we handle these moments? Amen. Whether they be moments of light bitterness, moments of heavy bitterness, how should we handle these moments? Look with me at verse 25 of chapter 15. First part says, and he cried to the Lord. Speaking of moments, speaking of Moses, rather. He cried to the Lord. And this is the lesson. Rather than sitting in the bitterness, sitting in moments where our praise and our faith stops and allowing our emotions to stir us on to sin and behavior that is inconsistent with who God is calling us to be, we should turn to God. Our God is big enough to handle our bitterness. Amen? Be it something light or be it something heavy, he's big enough to deal with the things that burden our soul and the emotions that come with that burden. But unlike us, he's not moved by the emotions. Scripture says that there's no shadow of turning in him, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is consistently able and consistency, consistently rather willing to move on behalf of his people. In the uncertainty of alternate routes, God provides a mental and emotional anchor so that throughout all the ups and downs of our roller coaster life, we can find stability in Him. Now, are we saying that emotions are bad? We are not. They are a gift and give us the ability to feel what others are feeling, to empathize and to sympathize, to weep with those that do weep, as Scripture says, and to rejoice with those that rejoice. Our emotions also give us the capacity to experience deep worship and reverence for God and also high praise and adoration of God. But unmanaged, our emotions can lead us to dark and dangerous places. Chapter 16 is the largest of the three chapters that we'll cover today. And I think present the greatest challenge for us in that it speaks to a more foundational issue. And that is our faith, our unbelief. If we fail in our faith, we'll never find the relief he provides in chapter 15. The rest he offers in 16 or the rescue he offers us in 17. Look with me at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, 
on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. If we look at parts of chapters 14 and 15 as God addressing our emotional needs and providing for us again a mental and emotional anchor in himself, In 16 and the first part of 17, we see God addressing our physical needs and proving that we can trust him even to provide for our physical needs as well. Amen. Israel is now in the wilderness of sin. It's been roughly a month and a half since they left Egypt and they're not in a place that has adequate resources to sustain the roughly two million in population that they have. Their need is real. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. Physically, the body needs food and water. But where Israel falters and finds themselves once again grumbling instead of trusting in God's ability to provide that it is just as real as their need, Israel grumbles, Israel grumbles again. But God does provide. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 16. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So God says, I'll provide for you meat in the evening and bread during the day. But God gives very specific instructions about this bread. He says, six days I'll provide bread. On five days of that week, gather as much as you can, as much as you can eat, actually, he says, only for that day. Let nothing be left over. On the sixth day, he says, gather twice as much because on the seventh day, there will be no bread. Now, given Israel's track record, how do you think they did with what God said? Look with me at verses 20 through 28. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a solemn day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will and bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses had commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? 
But again, before we look at Israel sideways, I think our situation is equally troubling. Israel struggled to believe God in a place where resources were inadequate. But many of us have the same struggle because our resources are too numerous. In our plenty, we can fail sometimes to acknowledge that it is God indeed who has provided, who is providing for us. And thank God for that provision. But the test is in the resting. The challenge is in the resting. Are we resting in God? You see, what we believe of God is evidenced by what we do. Israel struggled with obeying the law of God because they struggled to believe God. Our obedience is directly tied to our faith. On the first five days, some believed God, and so they gathered only what was needed. Others did not believe God, and so they gathered more than what was needed, and it rotted, and it became infested with worms, and it caused the whole camp, and I love that they use this word, to stank. That's just me. I see my sister Candy smiling. On the sixth day, some believed God and gathered the double portion. Others did not believe God and went out on the seventh day looking for bread, but there was none. What is God teaching us through Israel? Verse 29, he says, see, exclamation mark. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. See, this is God saying, are you tracking with me? Do you understand? Can't you see? You don't have to stress over your needs. I will provide if you only obey me. Matthew 6 tells us, take no thought for your life. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. He tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I don't know where you are this morning. You may feel like you're in the wilderness. You may feel like you're in a wealthy place. But God is saying, I am the provider. And when we come to a place where we believe that and where we trust in that, there is a rest that comes with it. Where all fears, all anxieties, all doubts are removed. And this is the place where God wants us to abide. You see, up until this point, we're really fighting ourselves. We're fighting our own insecurities. We're fighting our own fears. We're fighting our own inability. And God, in his grace, through alternate routes, have been teaching us to trust in him. And strengthening us and preparing us for, to fight the real enemy. As we work our way to a close, we'll look to the latter part of chapter 17. The people have moved from sin to a place called Rephidim. And here they face their first enemy in the wilderness. Look with me at verses 8 through 11 of chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. 
Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, uh, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. What do we know? We know that while Joshua and the other men were dressed for battle, Scripture tells us that as they were leaving Egypt about two months ago, they were slaves. We also know that Pharaoh feared their numbers and the possibility of an uprising or in case of an invasion that they would join their enemies and fight with them. So it's unlikely that while in Egypt, Joshua and these men received any kind of military training. So to say that they were not qualified for this fight is an understatement. But as we've seen chapter after chapter, God provides. That's the takeaway. If you hear nothing else, God provides. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, however inexperienced, however experienced, God provides. Moses takes the staff of God and goes up the hill, and through Moses, God intervenes. Again, whenever Moses' hands were raised, the children of Israel were winning. Whenever Moses' hands were down, Amalek was winning. Eventually, Scripture tells us that Moses gets tired, and they set a rock under him and, 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 and seat him, and Aaron stood on one side and her on the other, and whenever they... They held, rather, Moses' hands up, and through that, the consistent intervention, Israel wins the battle. Victory came to Israel by way of an intercessor because they were unable to defeat the enemy that was coming against them. God knew Israel calling himself a stubborn and stiff-necked people. He was aware of their fears, aware of their faults, aware of their failures, and yet he chose to set his affections on them. He chose to call them his own and to reveal to them his name, to give them an inheritance. Sometimes we can feel like the cards are are stacked against us, like we can't catch a break. The battles are so frequent and so intense that we feel like we can't catch a breath. Sometimes it feels like the enemy is winning. But family, we have an intercessor who is Christ the Lord. And instead of Moses' arms being raised, he was raised on a cross. But unlike Moses, he will never grow tired. He will never grow weary. Unlike Moses, our intercessor did not secure for us a temporary, will, a temporary victory, but an inter- eternal one. And just as God knew Israel, God knows you. And in his great love for you, in his desire to make you his own, to call you a son and daughter, to give you an inheritance not made by man's hands. He sent his son. He sent his son to live the perfect life that you couldn't live to calm anxieties about your performance, to take the punishment that would bring us peace, removing the fears of our not being good enough. To live the life of perfect obedience, to put an end to our struggles of doubt. All that he asks of us is that we take Sabbath in him. 
Would you rest in Christ today? We offer him to you. Will you pray with me?